Welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I am sitting here on June 20th, which is, of course, Juneteenth observed. Juneteenth, the newest federal holiday on the calendar. I think it was created, uh, well, I know it was created last year, but I think it was created too late for it to really be recognized in employment calendars. So most people did not have off for Juneteenth last year. This year, many people do, including all of those in the federal government. I'm not one of those. My company does indeed recognize Juneteenth. It's too bad that Juneteenth uh, only came around last year and doubly unfortunate that it has been, I think, sort of caught up in uh, the the hyper-partisan world in which we find ourselves today. I wish that Juneteenth was made a lot earlier. I wish that Juneteenth was declared a federal holiday under a conservative president. It's incredible to imagine, going back to June 18th, 1865, that there were people enslaved in the United States, specifically in Texas, Galveston area, I think, who were not aware of the victory of the Civil War, General Order Number 3 by the Union Army. Um, and only on June 19th, the next day, did they find out that they were proclaimed and made free, uh, freed from slavery. That's a pretty remarkable thing. Um for me, I think Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is the Fourth of July is essential reading for every American today. Uh, in it, Douglass, who I think would be uh, no friend to so much of the racialization that we see today, Douglass talks about, you know, what to a slave who's enslaved today, as he's writing, does the Fourth of July mean? And really, it means uh, very little, except that it is a reminder, in fact, that that freedom does not also extend to the slave. So that's a really sad thing to think about that uh, for so long after our nation's founding, July 4th would come and go, and to the, to the slave, it was only a reminder of this, the enslavement in which they found themselves and, uh, and of, of the fact that the United States did not recognize them as a person fully deserving of liberty. But now, obviously, we do since the Civil War, and uh, I think it's a good thing to celebrate. So I am, I am, uh, I'm in the pro-Juneteenth um, the pro Juneteenth crowd. Uh, I think it's a great federal holiday to, uh, to celebrate. All right, well, what do we have to talk about today? I think in the interest of intellectual honesty, it's important to take a step back or two every now and then and reflect on some of the things that, uh, that I've said and have done and to think about what would I have done differently? How would I phrase that differently? How have my thoughts and how has my thinking evolved in the intervening period? Because I always want to be someone who is not afraid of intellectual growth, is not afraid of changing his mind, and is open to new perspectives. And so um, so I want to talk about that in at least one, one uh, rather prominent case for me here. Uh, I also want to share some listener feedback on an episode that I did a couple of weeks ago on abortion and the end of Roe in America, or at least what we hope will be the end of Roe versus Wade in America. Um, so we'll talk about that as well. Uh, again, no, no guests, so just me, and I will, I will try to be brief. But you know that when I try to be brief, that often does not, does not work out. I also am going to try deliberately in this episode and in future episodes to speak more slowly. I have listened to myself recently and just realized that I am an incredibly fast talker. Uh, it's not great, and if you are someone like me who likes to listen to podcasts at something like one point seven times speed then uh, then my podcast is probably even a little bit much for you because I tend to maybe maybe that's maybe the problem is I 
speak the way I hear other podcasts and because I listen to podcasts so quickly, it makes me speak quickly. But in any case, I'm going to try to do better and speak more slowly. Hopefully, this is more understandable. Uh, hopefully, also, you cannot hear the rather loud air conditioner behind me. It's just very hot outside. And uh, I have family members who are up in the upstairs with me. And so I don't want them to be terribly uncomfortable if I turn the AC off. So I am powering through the loud air conditioning noise. Hopefully that does not affect the recording quality. But anyway, without further ado, let's talk first about the abortion episode. So a few weeks ago on May 26th, I guess, wow, almost a month ago, I did a podcast called The End of Row Abortion in America. And in that show, I talk about the leaked draft opinion that could spill the end of the Roe versus Wade uh, regime. I talked about how my father-in-law is cited in the draft opinion, and hopefully he will be will be cited in the final opinion. And by the way, I can't believe that that we still don't know who the leaker is. This is really remarkable to me. I have a strong suspicion that the Supreme Court itself knows, um, but to avoid turning this person either into a martyr slash hero or a villain, they are just choosing to keep that internally. That's that's what I think is probably probably happening. But it's still just remarkable to me that we still don't know. The general public does not know who the leaker was. And it's really, as far as I can tell, no closer to figuring it out than we were in the immediate aftermath of the leak. But anyway, we talked about the leak. We talked about uh, Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione declaring that Nancy Pelosi cannot present herself for communion uh, in his own archdiocese, of course, which is as far as his uh, canonical authority extends. We talked about some bad arguments for abortion. We talked about good arguments against abortion uh, and a whole lot more. And one of the things I said in there is that people who are making these pro-choice arguments, and I, by the way, have since thought, you know, we should, we should change the language around abortion. We should move away from language of pro-choice and we should move towards language of phobia because that rhetorical turn has been so effective for groups that like to label everyone something phobes, you know, homophobes, transphobic. The phobic language is, is very rhetorically effective. Uh, and so maybe we should start labeling the pro-choice side or the pro-abortion side something like nataphobic. You know, they're afraid of new life. They're afraid of babies. Um, because uh, I think it, it's often it's often true by the way, it, it rings more true than a lot of the other uses of the word phobia. I think in many respects, um, the side who is afraid uh, or, or the side who wants to push abortion is afraid of the responsibilities, the burdens, the interdependence that babies bring. And the fact is that interdependence is a fundamental part of our human condition and our human existence. So let me know what you think of that, changing our vernacular our language around the abortion debate to reflect that the other side is scared of babies nataphobic perhaps um but anyway in this discussion about abortion i mentioned that these pro-choice nataphobic advocates tend to paint this picture of the u.s being incredibly regressive you know that it is a handmaid's tale country etc and in that in that narrative, although they never say so explicitly because it would be an outright lie, in that narrative, we are given the idea that if the U.S. rolls back its reproductive justice, I'm using scare quotes there because that itself is a ridiculous concept, 
if the U.S. rolls its reproductive justice protections back and makes it more difficult for women anywhere to get an abortion at any time, then we're all of a sudden barbarians, um, unlike the rest of the civilized world. Well, actually, the case is that the U.S. is one of only four nations that has no nationwide restrictions on abortion for any reason up to the point of birth. Those nations are North Korea, which is, you know, anytime you're one of only four, including North Korea on your side, that's a bad thing. China, I mean, need I say more, and Canada. So basically, we have two Western democracies, and we have two authoritarian East Asian states. Okay. Now, one listener from Canada, Toronto specifically, wrote into me. Robert says, um, you know, he wants to to just outline some distinctions that delineate the situation in Canada from the situation in the United States. He says, while it's true that all legal restrictions on abortion were removed in the late 1980s, that happened almost by accident, and there are important differences between Roe and the situation in Canada. He continues, in a 1988 decision called Morgenthaler, the Supreme Court of Canada held 7-2 to that the abortion law in place at the time was unconstitutional. It's It's notable that the restrictions imposed by Section 251 were procedural, not substantive. The provision criminalized all abortions not authorized by a hospital's therapeutic abortion committee, but did not say anything about the conditions under which an abortion could be authorized. The important thing is that there was no majority opinion, and only one of the seven justices who found the law unconstitutional was willing to recognize a constitutional right to abortion. The government tried twice to pass a new abortion law, but Parliament voted down both bills, so the government gave up, and no subsequent government has wanted to take up the issue. That's why there aren't any legal restrictions on abortion, not because the Supreme Court recognized a constitutional right to abortion, but because the government couldn't get anything through Parliament, which is normal in the United States, but very rare in Canada. Morgenthaler is a much narrower decision than Roe, and the theory has always been that the Canadian court deliberately avoided doing what the American court did in Roe. He goes on, you describe Canada as a progressive country, and while that's broadly accurate, I think it's important to note that at no point did any branch of the Canadian government, including the judiciary, actually say there should be no restrictions on abortion. So uh, that, that's the end of Robert's, um, the, the end of the gist of Robert's comment. He has a few closing remarks. Uh, and I, I, again, Robert, really appreciate you writing in, and thanks for the clarification here. Well, well, not a correction per se. I do, I do uh, really appreciate the further context here. Um, and I take Robert's point to be that, yes, while it's true that there are no formal restrictions, that's not because the court in Canada has broadly defined a right to abortion as the Supreme Court in the United States has done. Uh, so even that, we would say that um, that uh, the United States is much further afield than Canada because the United States has enshrined a positive right to it via the court, and that is something that Canada has not done. So there is a sort of de facto freedom of abortion in Canada, but not necessarily a de jure freedom of abortion uh, because it's not positively defined in Canada as such. So uh, I do appreciate that. And I think that's super helpful, Robert. Thanks for, thanks again for writing in. To my listeners, by the way, love getting uh, email from listeners, especially ones like Robert, where uh, you're encouraging me to to rethink something or just look at something through a new lens or consider a a slightly different perspective um, or a radically different perspective. But uh, send me an email as always, Zach at creedlepodcast.com. Speaking of different perspectives and, you know, corrections and uh, things like that, I wanted to talk through this Uvalde school shooting situation. Um, I'm going to limit it to the Uvalde uh, discussion. I'm not going to talk about gun control here. It's not because I'm afraid to touch that issue. I'm I'm definitely 
up for talking about gun control. It's because I am not well read on the issue recently. I did a little bit of reading a few years ago on it, but nothing that really qualifies me to have a um, have an opinion uh, that I will stand behind um, strongly. So we can have you know if you want if you want to hear an opinion a, a an episode on that in the future definitely let me know. Again, I'm not at all opposed to discussing it. It's not like it's, you know, quote, too political to talk about. I, you know, you know me, I am not afraid to talk about things that uh, that might offend um, either side of an aisle, right? But I'm just not going to go there today because I am not prepared to go there today. Um, and I'm still thinking through a lot of uh, my own positions on that and the, the policy implications of things. I mean, I guess I will say briefly, like, I'm very open to gun control, which distinguishes me from um, many of my fellow, well, certainly a lot of my friends uh, who are not, um, and many people on the conservative side of the aisle. Um, so that is different. Um, but I guess I'm open to it as opposed to thinking it is the best path forward, because again, I am not convinced. I have seen, you know, I'm really open to red flag laws. The conservative writer David French has talked about these, but um, I, again, I need to do more reading, but red flag laws fail. Uh, and so, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to pass laws that are going to fail, um, all the time simply because it feels better to do something than to do nothing. And so red flag laws in New York, which New York does have should have stopped the Buffalo shooter, but they didn't. So there are really questions, real questions in my mind about the efficacy of these laws, um, that should inform our thinking about whether or not we should pursue these laws. Again, I haven't done the research. I'm not prepared to have a, have a lengthy extended discourse on that. But I do want to talk about Uvalde because I wrote a piece on Uvalde. Um, and the piece is on my Substack. If you've not subscribed to my Substack, please do. It's just creedle.substack.com. It's totally free for now. Um, but the piece that I wrote is called Uvalde and the Death of Courage. And this Uvalde piece makes the argument that the reason the police did nothing in Uvalde for 77 minutes while there was a shooter going on a murderous rampage inside was because they were cowards. I say it very clearly, and I don't shy away from making that claim at all. Um, I say the police waited so long because they did they, because they were cowards. And then I tie some reflections from C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. And you can read the article for yourself, but basically, <clears throat> in short, the chest is the part of us that moderates the head and the belly. It's the part of us that loves and fears. And it is the part of us that sort of is the is the seat of human action, if you will. Uh, the intellect gives us our reason, helps us understand a rational course of action. The belly tells us what we need to survive, the things that we desire and the things that we um, we enjoy. But the chest is what sort of moderates those things and, and gives us the conviction that we need to live life and to live life well. And I make the argument, um, you know, maybe more convincingly to others, more convincingly to some than to others. I make the argument that um, as a society in general, we lack chests. And so it's no surprise to me that the Uvalde police are afraid to storm into a school um, to rescue children from a murderous killer. And then I have this, you know, I have some asides. I go into, you know, the... Uh, you guys know I like film, so I go into some characteristics of modern superhero movies and really identify what I think is a lack of heroism or a lack of hero narratives in our popular films. And so it's no surprise, of course, that we raise children who have no idea what it means to be a hero, who have no sense of uh, courage, who have no 
ability to truly weigh these two competing goods, um, you know, preservation of one's own life, which is certainly a good, we should preserve our own lives, um, but also the, you know, saving of another's life. We don't have any way of sort of, uh, of weighing those things. Uh, and we tend to think, we tend to buy into this lie that physical death is the worst possible thing. And so anything that imperils our physical life uh, must be undertaken, if it is undertaken at all, with extreme, extreme caution. And so we've arrived at this point where um, the the Uvalde police stand outside the school for what seems like forever, and they are preventing parents from going in while the police stand around. They say they need more equipment. Um they go in once, they get shot at, so they immediately come back out, et cetera. And, uh, and admittedly, I wrote this in a, in a fairly emotional state because I, as a parent of, uh, as a parent of four young children, it's very difficult for me to, to imagine my own family in this situation. And so, um, yeah, again, admittedly, I wrote this from an emotional, um, not, not, not a strictly emotional, but I, I wrote this with emotion um, behind the thinking. Uh, there was thinking, I think this is a, a reasonable piece and I stand by the thesis that cowardice is rampant in our lives and in our society and cowardice is responsible for so many of our current social ills. But, and there's a pretty big significant caveat here, but I'm rethinking the, the, the sort of presumptions or the presuppositions in this piece. Um, and I think I owe it to, to um, all of you sort of talk through my thinking on this and how my thinking has evolved. So there's still an awful lot we don't know about Uvalde, an awful lot. And I and my my presuppositions my presuppositions could end up completely correct, and I could be vindicated in everything that I said when I wrote this piece. It also could be the case that as more information comes out, it turns out that my presumption of cowardice on the part of the police officers is not actually borne out by the evidence. But let me just outline to you some of the basic facts here, and then we can talk through um, how my thinking has evolved since then. At 11.30 a.m. on May 24th, 911 dispatchers get a call. They actually get two calls. These, in these two calls, the, call, the caller, a different person each time, is reporting that there's a gunman outside of the elementary school. Three minutes later, this gunman enters the school, and at some point, we don't know exactly when, he fires 100 different rounds into two connected classrooms. By 11.35, the police are on scene, having responded to that 911 call at 11.30. They enter the school, but immediately come under fire from the shooter, and so they leave. At this point, someone in the police force, <clears throat> perhaps the chief, although it's not clear um, to me at least, radios that they need tactical teams, they need equipment, specialty equipment, body armor, precision riflemen, negotiators, etc., uh, and by the way, this timeline is based on what the Texas Tribune has, has said uh, and has on their website, and I have it linked in my piece if you want to look at that. And the piece is linked in the show notes. All right, so that's at 11.35 a.m. Now, 19 minutes later, we're at 11.54 a.m. This is 21 minutes after the shooter entered the school. And now parents are there pleading for police to allow them to enter the school or to, for the police to enter the school and end this, get the shooter. At 12.03 p.m., we are now 30 minutes after the gunman's been inside. A student calls 911 from his or her phone inside the school. For the next 47 minutes, students will make six separate phone calls to police. And at the, in the final phone call, one hour and 14 minutes after the gunman goes inside, we're at, we're at the 74-minute mark now, a student calls and pleads, please send the police now. 
Finally, at 12.50 p.m., agents from a Border Patrol tactical unit killed the gunman. Those Border Patrol agents arrived on scene at 12.15. At 12.50, 35 minutes later, they're finally, they finally go in and kill the gunman. Those are the facts as I understood them then and still understand them today, although there are things I've learned that help me understand. I got some good feedback on the piece. Lots of people I um, have spoken to and, and have heard from via email loved it. I think there are good things in this piece. I think if I were to write this piece again today, I would tone this down and I would recognize that there is an open question as to whether or not these policemen are really cowards or just rife with incompetence. The reason I say that is I've done additional reading on uh, on what happened. And there's this one piece in, uh, I read it in USA Today. I think it's actually a Texas Tribune piece. Let me double check. Yeah, it's a Texas Tribune piece that I read in USA Today. It's a, they're one of those like uh, affiliated newspapers or whatever. Um, and in this, the Uvalde Schools Police Chief, Pete Arredondo, uh, defends his own actions and the actions of his police force on the day of. To me, there are two basic questions. Question number one is why did the police not have a master key? Question number two is, is there anything they could have done differently to speed up this timeline so that the shooter is not inside the school for 77 minutes virtually uninterrupted? The answer to question one should be easy to answer, although you know now it's we're almost one month after the shooting and we still don't know the answer to that. The information has been not forthcoming. Uh, and it seems like there's been a lot of obfuscation, which immediately makes me suspicious that there is some level of wrongdoing involved. But question one should be easy to answer. It should be, look, the key was at this location. We keep the keys in this facility. It took the officer this long to go get it. He did it right away. He came back. We had it. But that's not what happened. Based on everything we know, that's not what happened. We still don't know why, for example, the head of the Uvalde School District Police Force, this um, Arredondo character, we still don't know why he isn't driving around or walking around with a master key to the doors in his school district. He should have that. The fact that they couldn't figure out what key would open that door, to me, suggests a massive degree of, uh, well, certainly of incompetence. But as a non-attorney myself, I would not be surprised if that uh, is a, not just a fireball offense, it certainly is that, but but even a criminal offense. You know, such gross negligence that obviously endangers and led to the deaths of uh, many, many people. So that's question one. Question two is, is there anything they could have done differently? And this is where the the fog of war comes in. And this is where I think I was probably too quick to jump to conclusions in sort of assessing what happened. I have no background in law enforcement. I have no background in trying to take down an active shooter. I have very a very rudimentary knowledge of the tactics involved in taking down a shooter. So I don't pretend to know better than these folks. Um, uh, I, I don't pretend to know better than, than the experts who do it. I mean, I, I guess I don't really know how well the Uvalde Police Department knows how to do it, given that they didn't do it well and had to rely on Border Patrol to do it. But what I'm saying is I probably um, overly assumed a few things. And in reflection, upon reflection, upon reading some more, um, uh, some more accounts, I have realized that I think the actions of this day are much less clear than they, than they first appeared to me. When I looked at the fact pattern first, I saw Shooter goes in at, at um, 11.33 a.m., Shooter does not die until 12.50 p.m. That is 77 minutes. And it is very, very, very difficult for me to imagine any fact pattern that, that accounts for 77 minutes of the shooter inside the school with the police not 
engaging him that says anything other than rampant cowardice among the ranks of the on-scene commander, the police involved, etc. Well, it's come to my attention that maybe that's just simply wrong. For example, if they didn't have the master key, and if the door was actually really, really hard to breach because it was because uh, it was a steel door jam, it was a reinforced door, it opened outwards, so you can't use a ram on it, et cetera, all these things, which are, by the way, byproducts of hardening schools to make it to make them harder for gunmen to get into. Um, if all that is true, and the police really had no way of getting into the room other than that key, then we come back to the key question and why did it take so long for for them to get the key? Right, so there are some things that uh, there are some things that um, I've read since that have made me made me question my presupposition that the police were a bunch of cowards. Uh, another example of this: um, there's a long account in the Texas Tribune. I will link to it in the show notes, uh, in which um, uh, well, which tend to suggest that perhaps perhaps this police chief was not as cowardly as he first appeared to me when I. Uh, when I read this. This account that I will link has a lot of statements from this guy named George Hyde, who was the lawyer for um, Arredondo. And so take that, take take the entire story with probably a heavy dosing uh, of salt because the, the, the defense is basically from this gentleman's attorney. But I think in fairness, um, <clears throat> I, I should consider it and I have considered it um, since writing the piece. There's one account in which the lawyer tells of a Uvalde police officer who's in the school after Arredondo, by the way, has run into the school. That was the first thing he did per the lawyer when he got on scene. And this police officer notices that Arredondo is not wearing body armor. And so he's worried for the chief's safety. And he says, hey, how about I cover your position while you run out of the building to get it? And the attorney says, quote, I'll be very frank. I assume he's speaking to the press. I'll be very frank. He said, F you, I'm not leaving this hallway. He wasn't going to leave without those kids. So if that's true, it certainly undoes the presupposition I had in my piece and says that Arredondo is not a coward. Sadly, he's probably incompetent if he didn't have the key that he needed to have. That was such a crucial piece of the puzzle. But he would not be a coward, right? He'd be um, he'd be perhaps a courageous fool, uh, we could say, but not a coward. So I want to be I want to you know be open to that possibility if indeed I was wrong. Um, if the real problem is the key, then that's the question that needs to be answered in all of the all of the inquiries subsequent to that. There are some other things that are strange about this. Uh, for example, Chief Arredondo ran into the police, uh, ran into the school um, without his police radio. Um, and this story cites some experts, some of whom say that's a ter- that's a terrible idea. Why would you ever do that? Some of which, some of who say, you know, I I think one of whom says, uh, I kind of understand the position that he's in. He's um, he's just trying to act as quickly as he can and use both hands totally free to operate his weapon if he encounters the shooter, et cetera. I can see that to me, uh, probably a, a not good decision because then he's left inside without comms. Although it seems to be the case that he did have his cell phone on him, so he still had some way of communicating with the outside world. There is also the fact that there's no on-scene commanders. The Texas Department of Public Safety, the day after the shooting said Arredondo was the on-scene commander. He has since said, I didn't think of myself as the on-scene commander, which is a very strange way to answer that. Uh, I mean, I, didn't, I, I, I don't really know what to make of that. That seems strange. The leadership vacuum, though, it could certainly be a sign of cowardice because no one's able to step up and have the conviction to say, I'm taking control. They're all just sort of running around with, like chickens with their head cut off. 
or it could just be a symptom of complete bureaucratic incompetence like we've already talked about, or it could be both. So this situation is murky at best. And I think, although I may end up being vindicated in my initial premises and ultimately my conclusions, I think it's fair to say now that the fact pattern is not quite as strong as it should be to support my depiction or portrayal of what I think happened on that day. So uh, for that reason, I would, if I were rewriting this today, I would, uh, I would change that. Two more additional really quick thoughts. One is there is still a major question in my mind, not about the response itself, but about the response to the response or the response to the response to the response, uh, just in the fact that the Texas Department of Public Safety, the Uvalde Police Department, all of these folks have been so ridiculously protective um, and so intent on concealing what actually happened, so um, so sort of lackadaisical in their responses to the media, that really make me question what did happen here. It does not play in favor of the police that there has been so much hiding the ball going on since then. I don't see a whole lot of clarity emerging from the right authorities. Um, and that is very disturbing to me. It makes me think that more likely than not, there is some sort of wrongdoing here. Like for example, just gross incompetence where there should have been a key readily accessible and no one actually knew where it was. That's just inexcusable, completely inexcusable. Um, the second thing to say is that even if my premises are incorrect, I still think my conclusions are correct. There are plenty of examples today of cowardice all around us that indicates this major problem that we have, you know, what I call the thoracic collapse. Uh, we don't have chests anymore. We have no way of moderating the head and the belly. Uh, we have no heart. And while the Uvalde response may not be the best example, given some of the things that I have mentioned and given the lack of clarity in the fact pattern and what may still emerge, there are still plenty of things out there that exemplify exactly this problem that I'm talking about. I mean, look no further than the shooter himself. There's no greater act of cowardice than to take the life of an innocent human being. Just as the gospel tells us, Jesus in the gospel tells us, greater life has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. If, if laying down your life for someone is the greatest example of love, then the greatest example of cowardice of fear of the absence of love is to take the life of someone especially in such a senseless and horrible way i don't mean that all just as jesus tells us that greater love has no one than this that a man laid down his life for his friends he's telling us the highest expression of humanity the highest expression of love is to lay down one's own life for another person it follows logically, I think, that the opposite is true. That the greatest example of anti-love, what we might call hatred or fear, uh, and fear is obviously a central element in cowardice, the greatest example of that is to take the life of someone. Beyond that, the shooter as well obviously is unwilling to take responsibility for his own actions. He, has, he does not have the courage to face responsibility after the act. Uh, I, you know, I've no doubt that he would have taken his own life if given the chance, knowing that he was, um, doomed to, uh, being captured. 
And he has no responsibility for his own life. He refuses to take agency in his own life, and therefore he ends up just inflicting um, his wrath on the lives of others. So it's a great example of cowardice. Um, you know, we might say that if the Uvalde Police Department ends up ends up, you know, being vindicated, that uh, that of the shooter is perhaps a greater example of the cowardice that I am lamenting in the piece. And I saw just yesterday, as I'm recording, I think it was yesterday, uh, another shooting in. Um, New York State. It seems like almost every day now I open up Google News and I see there's there's another mass shooting somewhere in the U.S. Um, this is a problem. This is, you know, I've seen some people say this is a gun problem. I've seen some, some people say this is a mental health problem. Those things are not mutually exclusive. This could be both of those things. Um, but I think this is also a chess problem. This is a problem with the way that we have um, raised a culture, the way, the way that we have imbibed um, these really toxic ideas that... Uh, that preach to us that we are not responsible for our own actions, that we should not aspire to the highest ideals of the gospel. Um, and that's a really, really sad thing. So um, with all that said, I appreciate the time listening to this. Um, please pray for the families of the victims in the Rob Elementary School um, killing. It's just, it's so horribly sad. Um, with good reason, people are emotional about this. I think they should be. I think there should be answers from the authorities about what exactly happened that day. Um, and I hope that the police officers were not cowards. Obviously, it doesn't make a difference now as far as the um, the number of people who were killed on that day, but um, it, it makes a difference for, for the officers themselves. I hope that they can live with themselves after this. I hope that they did all that they could on that day um, and before. Uh, and I hope that they learn from this and... and police forces all over the country learn from this so that it doesn't happen again um because this did not need to happen the way that it did um but sadly because of either incompetence or cowardice and perhaps both it did um and now all of those of us who remain especially especially the families have to live with that so um thanks for listening let me know what you think uh and go ahead and sign up for my Substack if you're interested creedle.substack.com send me a note zach at creedle podcast dot com. And until next time, God bless you.